Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Tom Slater, editor of Spike. I'm joined today, as I am every week, by Spike columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. And no Fraser Myers this week, but we've got a very estimable stand-in in the form of GB News's own Inaya Florent Iman. Hi. Today on the show, we're going to discuss the demise of Roe v. Wade, the new anti-Tory politics, the Oslo shooting, and why Halifax has gone woke. So last week, a really genuinely historic thing happened. Um, Not in time for us to cover it on last week's show, (laughs) incidentally, but Roe v. Wade was struck down in America, ending 50 years of this constitutional protection for a woman's right to choose Ella, it's been a seismic event felt not only in America, but obviously in Britain, across Europe. And there's a a huge fight really now that the American pro-choice movement has on its hands in order to protect abortion. More than two dozen states are more or less primed to either ban abortion entirely, pretty much, or severely restrict it. What was your reaction to this? And do you think the pro-choice movement over there is up to the fight that it's got in front of it? Oh, that is a depressing question because I think most of them understand that they're not. And that it really is quite a bleak picture in America at the moment. I don't think anyone was really that surprised that Roe fell because all the signs were there in relation to the justices that had been appointed to the Supreme Court of late. And there have been, you know, people like Amy Coney Barrett being very open about her position um, as someone who was anti-choice or pro-life. And, you know, it didn't really come as a surprise. And, you know, the the sort of nature of American politics, it's hard to to get your head around, um, particularly someone from the UK, is that there is no real easy fix to this. You know, there have been suggestions, ludicrous suggestions, really, that, um, you know, Biden should bring in a kind of executive emergency action of the like that came in through the pandemic and just kind of override everything and call abortion a public health emergency and institute some kind of law. I mean, that's very undemocratic. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and and Emily Warren and others have suggested that, you know, abortion clinics could be set up on military bases because it's federal lands rather than that don't get controlled by state policy. Just terrible, stupid workarounds that aren't actually addressing the fundamental question, which is America now has a challenge on its hands. Does it believe in women's freedom? Does it believe in a woman's right to privacy, which Roe did enshrine, was good at enshrining? And does it believe in democracy? Because obviously the thing about having uh, women's bodily autonomy protected by unelected justices is that they're unelected Mm. justices. And it's not a, it's a shaky ground to have something as fundamental as freedom based upon. I think what the pro-choice side has to do now is recognise that I don't want to say hysterics, but the kind of the kind of performative nature of what's happened so far in relation to everyone reeling out a kind of handmaid's tale outfit and um, quite awful pictures of people with huge pregnant bellies um, with writing on them saying this is not yet human protesting and just catnip for mm. <laughs> catnip for the right. Um, leave all of that and recognise that you have to argue for abortion, not just on the basis of healthcare as a procedure, but as a fundamental political question of freedom, which is such a strong basis in America. Mm. We've just had discussions about vaccine mandates. We've got the right thinking that it holds the ground in relation to freedom. Like it's time to meet them there or time to call their bluff, time to call for solidarity and ask that question, which is why does America believe in freedom and liberty and choice and all these great things, but not when it comes to women? And it's going to be a long slog, you know, whether this happens on a state by state level, whether indeed Biden is going to make it part of his 
campaign, you know, and, and part of the midterms. But something something has to happen. And I think you have to start from somewhere. And if you recognize the failures that have been happened so far and actually move to suggesting that, you know, come across the political divide and start calling people out on their belief in freedom. I mean, the only way is up. Mm. I mean, it was interesting you were talking about the shock there, Ella, because of the fact that not least, did, as you say, we knew the way things were going. Trump did have those three appointees. Also, the, you know, the draft judgment was leaked, um, what was it, a month or so ago. And so we all knew this was happening, but it was still this tremendous shock. I, I was wondering, Nigel, do you think that in a sense, um, the left of American politics, the liberals, the pro-choices, whatever we want to call them, have just become too used to this being a closed question, to relying on the, the courts, it being kind of settled, not having to worry about it. Do you reckon it's kind of called out a yeah. level of complacency, I guess? I think it undoubtedly has. And although this happened in America and Roe v. Wade was always on somewhat shaky ground, even being in the UK, I mean, it really did make me feel at least as if the world instantly has become somewhat less free and actually the freedoms that many people have fought for can so easily um, be shaken and it is so fragile. And I think one of the things that was so striking um, to me was that when this did happen, the people that you would expect to be at the forefront of championing women's freedom were seemingly, many of them, fundamentally unable to actually articulate why this was about freedom. And you had the ACLU you know, weeks before saying, you know, the people most disproportionately affected by abortion was, you know, black and Latino people, the capital L and B and LGBT people. And the people that obviously most people associate as being affected women was completely kept out of it. And I saw another poster that went viral um, online with um, saying that, you know, black and brown uh, birth givers mm. are um, disproportionately impacted by um, abortion bans. So we can't even agree on the terms to which we're discussing this issue. And it's become so anti-humanist, anti-universalist. The thing that I think all women really can agree on is something that affects them or all women that care about women's freedom can say, it's not about your income, your cultural background, your religious background, this protects us all. And I think so many of the um, pro-choice activism in America has been asleep at the wheel, promoting, I think, an identity politics and a fragmentation, which is completely counter to the kinds of solidarity which is so urgently needed to pr protect women's freedom right now. I think that's a really good point. And you were speaking there Ella, about how this is the one area in which uh, the sort of libertarian right, if you like, have this um, huge blind spot. We know why, but nevertheless, it's a huge inconsistency. I feel like the same is true on the left in a different way. And so far as the left, not just in America, but across the West, have become really anti-freedom <laughs> in so many respects. This is the one area. And even when it comes to abortion, the temptation is to argue in terms of victimhood, mm. really. This will be going back to the bad old days. This will be going back to the back alley mm. and all the rest of it. And also, as, as Anai was saying there, the, the, the identity politics and all the rest of it. Do you think that will really kind of cripple the fight back such as it is? If you can't say what a woman is, can you really fight for, for women's rights? Or is that just a sort of, you know, anti-woke <laughs> talking point, a point like this? Does it really have that impact, do you think, on how this fight back such as it is might take place? No, I think Anaya's is right. It's centrally important that you are able to be really specific about what's happening because, <laughs> you know, by the fundamental nature of biology, this is not something that happens to trans women or people. This is something that happens to women. And, you know, we've said this blue until we're blue in the face on this <laughs> podcast. I mean, I had someone tweeting at me today saying, you know, until
until men and women have reproductive justice or equality and you're like oh, come back to me when you can get pregnant I mean just <laughs> what kind of stupid world is this in which we're not sort of talking about reality but I think the point about about the kind of liberal left's response to or answer to pro-choice activism is really important because so often they use the extreme stuff so you know can can't it's unbelievable that you would stop a you know 12 year old who's a victim of incest from getting an abortion some mm-hmm. uh, american senator said that or a politician said that recently and the problem with you know obviously that's bad but the problem with talking about women like that anyone who wants an abortion is a victim of some kind of heinous thing or that we're only relevant to talk about if we've been raped or mm. if we've had something done to us by a man is that what you're saying is that actually there should be no sympathy or empathy or solidarity for the woman who wakes up and her boyfriend's left her and she decides that she can't have the you know bring the baby to term anymore or the person for whom you know they don't realize until they're 10 weeks along that the contraception has failed or the person that just wakes up and decides i don't want to do this anymore and it's turning it's, it's kind of making a kind of situation which you have good women and bad women in the same situation of having an unwanted pregnancy and it's dodging the fundamental moral question and Anne Frady um, who's done a podcast with Brendan O'Neill and John O'Brien on Spiked um, this week you know makes the case in her book the moral case for abortion that yes abortion is all these things it's healthcare it's safety for women you know there's women across the world still who are dying from backstreet abortions but in you know in a in a western country like America the fundamental question has to be centered around is this a political freedom that we want to <laughs> defend for women are women allowed the same kind of freedoms and liberties as men you know whatever their decision and whatever their reason and until we t- have the courage to make that argument and take on discussions about the unborn mm. take on discussions about life be open about all of that and and you know that's an important thing that I don't want to dismiss people's concerns about that you know if you're religious and you have a deeply felt view on that then let's have that debate the question is, where do you make the value judgment about what's more important? Um, you know, your your views and your, you know, concerns about abortion or a woman's right to choose. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's by, we fall on the latter that the freedom of a woman is most important. But you have to have that debate. And yeah. I think the left for too long have decided to just call everyone who <laughs> raises qualms about abortion um, a kind of sexist misogynist. And that's not really true either. Mm. And just finally, and I, we talked a lot about how in recent years we have imported America's culture war, America's, um, you know, most hotly contested topics. And there was, I thought it was striking how a lot of British politicians were tweeting a lot about Roe v. Wade in the way they might not have been tweeting about a lot of other issues mm. that are actually facing this particular country. One thing I'm quite torn on, is that solidarity or is that again, falling into this trap of just, you know, constantly feeling like America is, we're just, it's just kind of upstream from us and we need to have out those arguments. Do you think that's a, that's a positive thing that we in Britain seem so gripped by this or is there something a bit odd about it as well, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I think overall it, it is solidarity in so far as, you know, this is such a fundamental issue facing American people. And actually many of those arguments that are going to be used on either side, I'm sure loads of people are going to be gearing up here to make similar arguments and many pro-life um, or anti-choice activists are organising quite strongly and are using a whole range of tactics and arguments in order to um, put their case forward. And so I do think it sends a message also to um, people here that we need to be prepared for that kind of discussion that may well happen also. But I do think that... Um, 
the only danger or several dangers, one of them is the fact that there is sometimes a kind of moral high ground that is Mm. um, pushed in the UK that we are, we're not as bad as America. And I do think that actually um, we do have our own problems here around freedom, whether that's freedom of speech, women's freedom and so on. So I don't want it to be used as a way of avoiding the difficult questions about actually how women's freedom are are, um, hampered in this country also. So turning back to the UK now, let's talk about something else we didn't get a chance to cover last week because of the timing of it all, which is these twin by-election defeats for the Tory party um, in Wakefield, a former red wall seat taken by the Tories in 2019, and also in Tiverton and Honiton, a kind of blue wall, you know, uh, Tory grassroots forever seat in the southwest of England, in the latter's case taken by the Lib Dems in quite spectacular fashion, uh, in slightly less spectacular fashion, Labour took Wakefield. Ever since then, there's been a lot of talk about how Politics has really become kind of Tory versus the rest or Tory versus anti-Tory. A lot of discussion about um, a potential electoral pact between the Lib Dems and Labour, whether it's formal or informal. That's where things seem to be going. Uh, there was a report in the New Statesman in the last couple of days talking about how there's even kind of soundings going on about what the Lib Dems might want if there was some sort of coalition government. But it, in general, it feels like that's the kind of divide in politics now. It's not Tories versus Labour, it's Tories versus the anti-Tories with Labour as a kind of more senior <laughs> partner, I guess. Ella, what did you make of, of those particular by-elections? Were they as significant as everyone is is talking about? And what do you make of this this new dynamic which is emerging? Well, I think two things could be true at the same time. You know, they were significant because the Tories lost so badly, um, particularly in Tiverton and Honiton, where they lost such this huge majority. And, you know, I think uh, I've got family who live in Tiverton and lots of people were talking about the, sort of jokingly, but seriously saying, just the fact that tractors were brought into this whole kind of <laughs> scandal made us look like chumps because everyone thinks we're just uh, thick farmers. But there was, so there was a kind of, it, it wasn't that, the Lib Dems were fantastically popular. They've always been sort of, people have flirted with them in, in mm. the Southwest for a long time. And been the party it, of protest there more than anywhere else. Yeah, it seems like, yeah. yeah. but it wasn't, It wasn't. They, they're kind of claiming this as this mm. amazing victory on the basis of their policies. Um, it wasn't that, it was a mm. protest vote against the Tories. And, you know, like you said in Wakefield, yes, it's, it's a kind of, I think it's a really important signifier of, and should freak out Conservative MPs about the fact that if they take these red wall seats for granted as they have, they will lose them just as quickly as they gained them. And um, but again, you know, Labour's kind of bleating about successes there are probably um <laughs> probably not very astute given what John Curtis pointed out that the losses for the Tories far outweighed the gains for Labour. So, you know, yes, there was a kind of yes, it was important. But the other the other side to it is that I think, you know, you're right to say that it's Tories against the world because the Tories still run the show. And, uh, you know, nobody can tell you anything really positive about the Labour Party, R- really can't. Mm. The Lib Dems have just been this kind of odd side act for so long. Um, and the fact that now there is this pact on the, on the cards, allegedly, you know, the Labour would go in with a party that's still... It just oppressively stinks of anti-Brexit sentiment, makes a virtue out of it to just, you know, it might be quite refreshing actually for Labour to just come out and say, actually, we've thought this all along rather than playing it sitting on the fence game. Um, but they're kind of, you know, there, there is nothing to say positive about any of those parties other than that they sort of feed off anti-Tory sentiment. And so what a depressing situation to be in um, for voters because there is, you know, you either have a ruling party that has completely 
completely screwed up um, the current crisis in relation to the cost of living has, you know, showed its true colours in relation to anti-democratic sentiment around the pandemic, all the decisions it made in relation to civil liberties there. And, you know, a prime minister who's just acting like a fool at the moment, you know, t- talking about mm. Putin as having toxic masculinity. <laughs> and, you know, he's just such a nitwit a lot of the time. Um and you know, so so where do you go? And and or the new hope on the horizon is the Lib Dem Labour Pact. You just think I've woken <laughs> up in the early two thousands. I want to kill myself. Is that like nothing changes? <laughs> I mean, it, it is really remarkable. There's been like some uh, discussions floated that if there was a pact between Labour and the Lib Dems in the election, that they would um, one of their ideas would be that there'll be electoral reform without Mm. a referendum. So again, they're still very much um, on this, or at least it seems on this very anti-democratic wave. You know, I I really think they should change their name at this point. But Boris Johnson, you know, he has said, even in spite of these um, by-election results, that he wants to hang on until 2030. So, I mean, it's quite interesting that despite, as you mentioned, the kind of cost of living crisis, despite, you know, two years of the pandemic, inflation, all sorts of things, and, you know, a comfortable number of his MPs trying to get rid of him and two crippling by-elections in one day, he still um, hasn't necessarily found um, the vision and kind of policy platform that was really the basis to which he was elected on. And I do think it is very sad and frustrating for voters that the level, the kind of opportunities that we have as voters in order to argue for an alternative to have um, our interests realised are so limited. And and it seems to be a continuation of this, you know, Labour, Tory, Lib Dems with very few ideas, um, very few um, policies to actually transform the country and a very uh, significant disdain for voters. Mm. So I think it is deeply unfortunate um, and it doesn't um, appear as if the Tories even themselves have really grappled with the challenges that we face and it seems that it will just continue to plod along like this. No, it is really depressing. I think especially for those voters who might have lent their vote to the Conservatives mm. last time around because it does feel like this new dynamic. First of all, this anti-Tory thing, it seeks to repudiate probably the uh, the few positive things about this Tory government or at least what it originally set out to do. Brexit, um, taking on the culture war to a degree, just being on voters' side and a lot of these issues on which people have been silent. That's really what all these parties want to get rid of, mm. really. That's all of the things that they see as aberrant and proto-fascistic are the things that other people see as democratic and positive and, mm. and liberal, more in line with their particular views. But what is your choice? You know, you've, you can either ride or die for the Conservatives and completely ignore everything that has gone right, Nadine Dorry style, just be mm. like, this is an attempt to take out the <laughs> Prime Minister and ignore all of their failings. Or you just stop voting, um, yeah. which is what a lot of those voters who've been so decisive in recent years have, have done. If you're enjoying the show so far and like what we have to say, then why don't you consider becoming a spiked supporter? Spike Supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spikes. If you give £5 or more per month or £50 or more per year, you can become a Spike Supporter and get a whole load of extra perks. Spike Supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all the items in our shop, and you can bookmark articles as you browse the Spiked website. This is our way of saying thank you to those of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free and it always will be. So we're incredibly grateful to those of you who hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone anywhere can access Spiked. If you don't give to Spiked yet, then now is the perfect time. Just head to spiked-online.com forward slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spiked supporters account. That's spiked-online.com 
forward slash supporters. Thank you. And now back to the Spiked podcast. We should go on to a, an even bleaker story, actually, um, which has quickly been forgotten. So last Friday, there was a, this um, suspected terrorist shooting in Oslo in Norway. It was on the eve of uh, the Gay Pride march there, targeting a gay bar and jazz club and another bar, if I understand it correctly. Two people were killed, um, more than 20 people injured. The person who's in custody is a Norwegian national of Iranian extraction who was known to the security services effectively as a radicalised Islamist. He's not cooperating at the moment, so they're still trying to work out whether or not this um, it was specifically targeted at gay people in particular, given the timing and given one of the targets. Um, but it's been another one of those attacks which has come and gone without leaving much impression, despite the fact that you would think particularly as, you know, Pride Month is now drawing to a close, that's something impro- approaching, a, you know, a sort of national religion in a lot of places in the West at the moment. Still, this sort of attack, Ella, hasn't registered for some sort of reason. Why do you think that is? Well, I think, you know, as you've pointed out in your column this week, I think it's because the uh, the identity of the attacker um, because as you pointed out, if this was someone from, you know, a, for, who was expressing far right views or um, a kind of, you know, Dylan Roof type figure, mm. then um, rightly there would be international outrage at the fact that someone would dare to attempt and, uh, and be successful at a fatal assault um, at a time of celebration of gay rights. Um, but the fact, the silence around it suggests that some people have made a decision not to um, raise the alarm about it and not to write the kind of endless columns that you might expect about it. Because uh, if you go down the route of calling out alleged at this moment Islamist um, terrorism, then you get into the conversation that we've long been calling for on this podcast about the nature of what, why Islamism is on the rise, why terrorist attacks like this happen and what is at the root of this kind of um, hatred and and that risks in, in today's world being called as an Islamophobe. It risks having discussions about, about the difference between Islam and Islamism that lots of people I think just put their fingers in their ears and don't want to have. But, you know, the, the, the kind of, the upshoot of this is that you know, I remember, I still, we still have um, remembrances and people still write on the anniversary of the, um, of the nail bombing that happened in a London pub against um, gay men at the time, which was horrific. And there was, there's this kind of, I think it's, it's sort of, it tells you something about the abdication of responsibility of solidarity, that these kind of, whether it was, you know, in relation to the Orlando attack that you mentioned in your column or other ones that have happened more recently, that there isn't this sense of, any kind of attack on not just an identity group, or, but on society at yeah. large, a, a, a terrorist attack is something to not just be mourned, but to be to be angry about, to do something about. Um, and I do think we're getting desensitised to, you know, willfully desensitised to this because, you know, it's also the uncomfortable truth that loads of people still like to talk about Joe Cox, for example. And I've got not got a problem with that. Mm. I think we should still talk about Joe Cox, but they won't talk about the men who were stabbed in a London park um, because, you know, in Reading. in Reading because they were gay. Even David but, Amos has kind of faded. Yeah. And so then you have to ask, is it the case that this just happens all the time and it's a bit like watching the Europe war in Ukraine, you just kind mm. of get desensitised to killing? Or is it because people have decided that this isn't a row they want to get involved in and take a backseat? And if it's the latter, then mm. it's quite depressing. What do you think about this and I? Yeah, I mean, I really do wonder where 
the red line is, I mean, how much really will be sacrificed on the altar of identity politics when you have, you know, members of parliament, as you mentioned, you know, Sir David Amos, uh, murdered on the streets of the UK. You have gay clubs um, where people um, are being stabbed and killed. There's many discussions that, you know, we've had and will continue to have around kind of freedom of speech. And we know what happened with Charlie Hebdo. I mean, these are fundamental freedoms that are the basis of a democratic society for people to be able to live a, a free and open life in a way um, that they choose. And that is being attacked in a murderous and dangerous way. And it is scary to think that when this is happening, there is a chilling silence on the part of the political class, which seems to me to be purely a, a matter of either fear or inconvenience, because the reality is actually speaking up against this, doing something about this is far from Islamophobic, is actually um, treating Muslim people within society mm. with dignity and respect to uphold um, their freedoms as well as everybody else's. Because as the majority, of course, Muslims in British society um, completely abhor this sickening behaviour. And so this silence seems to me to be, you know, quite, quite, frankly, disgusting. Um, and I think has many racial undertones and just an avoidance. And I think it is very sad. But also it is this logical conclusion of the hierarchies of identity. When you institutionalise that logic, it really plays out in reality, which is the reaction that you have, your empathy towards it, um, really depends on whether or not it's politically convenient or whether or not it um, ticks particular identity boxes. And is really is that really the road that we want to go down as mm. a society? And, you know, if, if it is, then I think that we are creating a society um, that is not just less free, but a much less safe place to live in to be a free person and I think that is very sad and we had Sadiq Khan you know not too long ago saying that you know terrorism is basically just part of living in a, in a major city I mean I think that is um, a defeatist attitude a deterministic attitude I, it doesn't have to be I think that we can make choices about what we want to do about this issue um, but right now there isn't the political will to do that and I think that is really really devastating. I am struck by the fact that you've got so many people who are particularly interested in kind of LGBT politics mm. and whatever. And yet it strikes me that kind of Islamist extremism of all the ideologies to be worried about as a threat to gay life mm. is probably one of the most serious and yet one of the most actually overlooked. I mean, you talked about the Reading attack there, Ella, where three gay men were um, murdered by this um, Libyan Islamist asylum seeker. Again, it's not entirely clear that, that was the point, but still a kind of, you know, a horrendous killing, a big blow to the gay community in that particular town. In 2020, in Dresden, in Germany, there was a gay couple who were targeted by an Islamist um, specifically because they were gay. It was this ISIS convert. He killed one of them, um, very badly wounded the other one. No one remembers that yeah. <laughs> at all, you know. And it is it is just striking where you think that despite the constant talk about um, all of the different isms and phobias and how they're going to be visited upon us, usually it's a kind of white working class sort of brute is the kind of implied villain of the piece. This doesn't bother them whatsoever. It's really, really quite striking. Because, I mean, what is that blind spot about? Yeah, well, because it because it is so targeted. Because we know that central tenets. I mean, you know, Islamism and ISIS and things are kind of in general death cults. I mean, they're sort of like <laughs> hate everyone. But there well, is equal a, opportunities. Barbarism is going <laughs> yeah. on there in some respects. But. I shouldn't laugh. But there's but there's a kind of you know there there are specific tenets of that belief system which highlights women gay mm. people um disabled people as the you know the sort of minorities that we in the west like to say that we 
you know, think, care about protecting. Mm. Um, and the sort of freedoms that we yeah, care about yeah, protecting. Yeah, are, are uh, central to their ire. But, the, but it's also important to say that an attack on a gay club and on gay men and women or an attack on, it, it, you know, it, it should warrant our solidarity and is an attack on us all. Mm. Um, it's an attack on the general freedoms that we all hold in society together. It's the uh, same reason why, you know, when uh, the Manchester bombing happened, it wasn't just an attack on young girls. It was mm -hmm. an attack on the whole idea of a free society being able to go out and have fun and enter and, you know, entertain each other. And so there's, you know, I think it's also partly that this inability to express that sort of universal appreciation of why combating terror, why you shouldn't be defeatist about terrorism, why it's important to highlight where it happens and, and why you should care about it. Uh, not just if you're gay, but if you're anyone who has a kind of freedom, love and bone in your body. Um, that's what marks us out as different from these these horrors, these mm. people, these kind of uh, completely immoral, um, dystopian human beings who have gone yeah. from living in liberal democracies and afforded all the freedoms that we have and then turned against us. So you have to have this question of why aren't we able to defend our own values? Mm. Um and, uh, you know, the, um, if you're going to be really controversial, you'd say that one of the unfortunate things is that lots of people who are doing the whole kind of, whether it's the extreme trans activism or the kind of identity politics stuff we see today, spend most of their time trashing these universal values, mm -hmm. saying that they can't, you can't, you cannot feel how I feel as a gay man, or you cannot feel how I feel as a woman. So we're doing part of their work for them. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to get over that and reassert our belief in, universal questions of freedom and democracy to, to to make a distinction that says we are not like those people they are our enemy and we'll all stand together against them and do you see any prospects of us getting past this anytime in our i mean it does it does sort of feel like a lot of these attacks have just become like natural disasters you yeah. know they're horrible they happen we mourn them we have a vigil everyone gets together kumbaya for about five minutes and then everything everyone packs up and goes home until the next one happens essentially do you see any way of breaking out of this i mean as touched upon before about the the murder of sir david amos i mean the 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 discussion that was had so soon after that was about social media you know it wasn't even directly about the issue at hand and i agree and um, very much with ella that um actually we have to be able to be confident in articulating why universal values, why these humanist values, mm. why freedoms are important as a whole, um, in order to then defend when you have the most extreme attacks on it. You know, it was only a few weeks ago when these protesters, which quite frankly are quite a fringe um, group of people, got a whole cinema chain to capitulate to pulling a cinema that was made by other Muslims. And you had a crippling silence again by many areas of the political class. Almost nothing was said by anyone from the Labour Party. So whilst obviously that is not comparable to some of the um, actual terrorist incidents we've had, it's the way in which there is an increasing normalisation, which has frankly just become institutionalised across the board, where freedom doesn't matter, freedom of speech doesn't matter, tolerance um, and, and diversity in the most meaningful sense, which is diversity um, of thought, freedom of religion and all of those fundamental democratic values. So until we can um, re-articulate those things, feel confident in them and engage in them in the true meaning of the, those words. And I, I worry to think if we can actually defend it in the face of other people who are morally certain, you know, righteous mm -hmm. indignation, know exactly what they believe and are willing to defend it oftentimes to the death. I don't really know if we have what we can say, you know, at this current moment in our political climate to people that have such um, powerful moral clarity when we often don't. Mm.
definitely. And to move from the tragic to the quite ridiculous, let's talk about Halifax. So Halifax has become the latest high street bank to go woke. That's a sentence I never thought I'd have to say, but uh, <laughs> the big Twitter storm this week. So they put out um, a tweet announcing this kind of new initiative, this new campaign around allowing um, people who work in the high street branches uh, to wear name tags that also have their preferred pronouns on them. They said they wanted to open a conversation about gender identity but as soon as a few of their customers complained in the in the threads and on social media and whatever, uh, they promptly closed that discussion down and urged people, in fact, to close their accounts if they weren't on board with this wonderfully <laughs> diverse moment. Uh, they're not the only ones. Um, NatWest, I believe, have already ushered in these kinds of badges. Um, other kind of high street bands like M&S, et cetera, have been doing it for a long time. Um, there's been stories about the home office, even, you know, various kind of wings of the US military <laughs> stories of kind of, you know, preferred pronouns being ushered in. Ella, what do you make of all of this? Because I suppose the other side is saying, why are you getting so upset about this particular issue? But there's surely a kind of coercive impact of demanding people follow along with this form of gender ideology, if you like. It's also just intensely annoying. It's, it's like, you know, when <laughs> you see, else. like, the, you know, the kind of signs on doors and roads that are really obvious, you know, like a slight bump here or something. It's like, if you're looking at someone called Barry Collins, who's <laughs> 72 and is a bank clerk with, you know, short grey hair and a tie, I think you could probably you know, it wouldn't take a sort of someone with PhD in biology to ascertain that he's a man and that he probably would like it if you use he, him pronouns. Or <laughs> who even thinks about pronouns? I mean, it's really not a thing that anyone, it's just part of what you learn as a kid. But there, you're right, there is this sort of, um, there is this slightly darker side to it. I mean, these things are always announced on Twitter. I think mm. that's really important because if it was genuinely just a policy that you and your employees had come to some kind of understanding that maybe that some of them had asked for it in a meeting and you just wanted to institute it and say 10 of them wanted to have it on their badge and you said, fine, then I, then probably I wouldn't have any, you know, whatever. It's a bit like people putting up family pictures in their cubicles. It's just something they want to do. But if you're announcing it as this kind of a policy, a policy that everybody has to feel pressured into doing. And that also you as a customer have to feel pressured into, you know, nodding along and smiling mm. and, and this is wonderful and great and who could have a problem with it. Then what you're doing is close is you're saying the discussion about gender is a closed shop. And we know that outside of the world of Halifax, that this has uh, far reaching implications in relation to single sex spaces and things like that, that the conversation about gender and gender ideology is not just a silly thing that fits on a badge or in a Twitter storm. It is a serious conversation about sex and biology and its worth. So, um, you know, the fact that, you know, a, a bank is now the hero of progressive politics, <laughs> but for instituting, you know, a badge, you just think, where have, where has the liberal left gone in which it has moved towards, you know, it's, it's top contenders being Ben and Jerry's yeah. and Halifax. Um, <laughs> it's just a weird, the weird new world Mount we Rushmore live in. Of progressive <laughs> yeah. but I, I think that's just such an important point. I mean, if there's any doubt that, you know, these woke politics, so to speak, have very much become, um, the dominant ideology of, of the kind of ruling class, then the way in which, you know, banks and as you said, Ben and Jerry's and all these various different corporations have adopted this wholesale because they know that, for example, it confers, um, 
very uh, little harm to them, but a lot of status in the circles that they want to be in and the groups that they want to um, associate themselves with. I mean, I speak to groups that are organising around freedom of speech and women's sex-based rights and all sorts of issues that actually have majority support across the country. Mm. But many of these corporations wouldn't touch any of those issues with a barge pole. It's Mm. clear that it's because, you know, they see these things as um, fashionable um, amongst the the set that have um, influence and the gatekeepers of, you know, the cultural establishment and political class and so on. And I think, I mean, it's quite striking when you see some of those tweets saying, if you don't agree with our values, then you shouldn't, you know, be a customer or you can find another bank. I mean, I mean, that's quite weird to me to think that a bank would be actually actively pushing people away. But I mean, I do really wonder how it's really got to this point. I mean, who is making these these decisions? Such a big corporation that um, has customers from a wide variety of backgrounds, millions of people are handing their um, social media accounts, which has access to the entire public. It's now become a news story to what seems to me to be kind of 18 year olds that <laughs> might be kind of interns for, yeah. first out of university, which could be handling, you know, sensitive information, confidential data with very, very little oversight. And I think, um, as you said, Ella, those that say, oh, you know, why do you care? Well, actually, you know, gender identity and the debate around that is a deeply contentious, important discussion that has real material implications across all levels of public life. And so when a corporation takes a partisan political um, viewpoint and and actively pushes um, and, and divides people around that issue, then that is an issue to care about. And yes, there's a funny element to it, but it, and it plays out in these tiny skirmishes, but it really reveals just how far this ideology mm. has become embedded, where these corporations see it as totally uncontroversial, unquestionable. And we should say it's not just about the customers either, it's about the people who work there, you know, because obviously it's worth saying that this particular scheme is voluntary, but who wants to be the person who works at this high street bank and think, this is rubbish and I don't want to be involved in it? You know, mm. you're going to kind of ostracise yourself. Mm. There's always a kind of veiled menace behind these kind of quite be kind policies. The other thing I don't get about it, which is just a side note, is which often happens with the pronoun discussion. You very rarely use someone's pronouns when they are actually there. <laughs> like you're not going to refer, as she was saying, you know, sh- surely you'd be in a situation where, you know, uh, relations have soured quite significantly yeah. before you start doing something <laughs> like this. Very, very odd. But um, why is it important, do you think, Ella, that we do sort of push back against these things, even in their more ridiculous examples? Because as an I was saying, as these things have got more mainstream, they pop up all the time. They're often kind of funny. Um, it's often quite easy for the other side to caricature people as getting angry at an ice cream brand or a high street bank <laughs> for something relatively mm. innocuous. Why do you think it's important that even in its uh, more ridiculous manifestations, we challenge this sort of new ideology. I think it is important because if you say that you can't, you you know, something as fundamental as whether a person is a woman or a man that you can't ascertain without using specific language, without signifying on a badge, he, him or she, her or whatever, then what you're saying is that we, we're not as a society sure about each other, that we're not, we can't, you know, we don't have the intelligence and the sort of the the social backing to understand who we're interacting with, and that then plays out in more serious in the more serious instances of, for example, lots of stories recently. The big ones happened in Ireland, where things like maternity policies start to use words like pregnant people or start to use gender neutral language, where actually not being sure about who you're dealing with becomes really problematic. You know, in the world of medicine, in the world of prisons, in the world of um, you know, outreach programs like rape crisis centres. So if you're, you know, if we're giving up that sort of certainty, and actually, it's it's something that happens in bad faith because 
it really just is nonsense that people don't know who each other are, mm -hmm. you know, and, and actually what no one likes to admit is that if you aren't sure, most people usually have a conversation about it and, and, a, and, it, and it can be quite, you know, funny and nice. And it's not like every trans person is walking around waiting with indignation to be yeah. misgendered. It's just such a horrible way of looking at, you know, how trans people are citizens in a world with, with other people. They're not that prissy. But if you if you're saying that we need to codify everything in language in this very restrictive, very kind of useless way, actually, you know, kind of in in a bad faith position, then what you're saying is that we're we're all scared of each other. We're walking around not being able to make judgments about each other, not being able to um, to link in with each other. And I think that is a very dystopian situation to be in because. Language is very important, you know, as, as journalists and commentators, it's the, it's the weapon that, of our choice, but you know, we know it has power, but it also, it has the power to, as well as express things, to shut down discussions. And I think really that's what this is doing. It's saying, um, don't have, <laughs> it's not saying, oh, maybe call me she if you like. It's saying, if you don't call me she, then you're a bigot. And I think that's a problem. And also, I just think, we have to really ask, do we really want, you know, the companies we work for, our bosses to be celebrating our sexuality? I mean, we're, we're, <laughs> yeah, we're, privacy. We're, it's like exactly. none of your well, business. Where is the kind of privacy point in all of this? I as mean, soon as you walk, it's like, which one are you? Then? Yeah, exactly. Like, I remember when the kind of Black Lives Matter protests happened and so many um, people were telling me about companies that were kind of asking them, you know, mm. you can take a day off. Yep. I'm sure you're kind of traumatised about this. This is really patronising, really condescending and increasing encroachment into people's private life has nothing to do with the workplace but also is politicizing the workplace you want to go there and kind of do your job um, unless you have a kind of job that involves politics but when you're going likely most people that work in a bank you know don't really want to um, be uh, feeling pressured and getting involved in thorny kind of political conversations that can alienate them from their colleagues or make or create divisions that weren't previously there this is actively um, politicizing an environment creating division between people when actually we should most people just want to get on with their job and not worry about these contentious issues that they really just want to escape from most of the time Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.